This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. To spread grace, speak truth, restart, this is the kingdom. You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom, the kingdom, yes it is, gotta spread the word. Which you know good, Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibbony. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Now, all those who all, all of you who have been listening to this podcast for the last couple of weeks know that Chris has been missing, not through any fault of his own, uh, but because my schedule was kind of messed up. But Chris is back today. So I know you are glad to hear that. Chris, how have you been doing? Sorry about the, the, the inability for us to get our schedules together, man, but glad to have, have you back on today. Hey, I'm glad to be on again, uh, that we could connect and, you know, I'm happy that the things that are keeping our schedules uh, crazy are good things. I, I believe God is doing something in our time. That's good. God is definitely moving. I mean, you know, my week, my few last few weeks have been really crazy. Got an opportunity, but I got the chance to do a lot of cool stuff. So got the opportunity to uh, speak or do at least do an interview for um, the If If uh, conference. Uh, that was great. I uh, also got a chance to go to uh, Pro Athletes Outreach with my man, uh, Benjamin Watson, and speak to a bunch of NFL uh, players who are, who are Christians and see some new Christians. You know, they they baptized quite a few uh, brothers out there, too. So it was really good, man. It's been a great couple weeks. Yeah, awesome. But just busy, man. Just just really busy. Uh, as you know, Chris, we, we've been talking about this for some time. Uh, it's coming to a close, but there's still an opportunity. So if you are interested, if you're in Atlanta or you're in Chicago, You still have time to apply for our Christian Civic Leadership Academy. If you want to run for office, you want to run a civic organization or you want to understand policy better or just be on a campaign and and be part of, uh, you know, kind of electoral politics. This is for you. Stop just talking about politics and see what it feels like to really get in the game. If you are committed, we want Christians to be formed um, through a, a Christian framework instead of always being formed by one ideological tribe or the other so please join us uh we 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 want uh, as many people to apply as possible as always you know that gives me the opportunity to shout out our sponsor and our partner when it comes to the ccla which is the fetzer institute i want to shout the fetzer institute uh, out uh, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it we appreciate y'all um anything to say about the ccla though chris Man, just again, encouraging people. I know folks in Chicago uh, and really folks have been emailing, but certainly folks in Chicago have been talking to me about this. Uh, Really, you know, just go on uh, to the end campaign website, uh, engage the application. You know, we want to bring people into this. I'm, I'm super excited about it. Even, you know, in the midst of my own campaign, I'm just seeing how critically important it is uh, for believers to bring this uh, sort of and campaign framework into the arena. 
we want to see more people doing that, you know, not only running, but again, I'm seeing uh, just in, in the campaign, the hurdles uh, to staffing a campaign and making sure that the sort of uh, internal integrity is there in, in terms of the, the values and approach while making sure that the skill set is there to, to execute and be excellent and the, the blocking and tackling of doing the campaign. So I think this is one of the most important things that's happening, you know, at the intersection of church and civics right now. I really do think it is. Um, and so I just encourage people to get involved. Yeah. And if you want to get involved again, you can find the application on our website. That's and campaign, A-N-D campaign.org slash academy. Check us out, man. We got a lot of interesting topics coming up today. So as always, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. All right, Chris. First Peter chapter two, verse 17 says this. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God and honor the emperor. Here, Chris, uh, respect means to honor, to value or to esteem. It also means to be courteous and to acknowledge the worth of others, especially other believers. Even more than just respect, Chris, we're supposed to show love and a deep affection for other brothers and sisters in Christ. But one thing that I've noticed, and you might have made the same observation, too often our esteem for other groups is based on their willingness to accommodate us. Their willingness to stand in agreement with our storylines and co-sign our opinions. We too often only respect people in other groups who serve our interest and tickle our ears. Otherwise, all bets are off. One example of this, and it's certainly not the only example, but this is often the case when it comes to race relations, unfortunately. Some, not all, some majority Christians claim to appreciate, love, and respect black people. But upon further examination, when we look a little closer at certain patterns, it becomes fairly clear that they only show courtesy and respect to black people who agree with them and who won't challenge their cultural point of view. Earlier this week, I tweeted about how those who only respect black people who agree with them aren't actually showing respect. Their race relations efforts are disingenuous and self-serving because that's not respect at all. That's just tokenism. If you're only agree, if you're only going along with people who agree with you, that's tokenism. Uh, if you're only courteous and affectionate to people, to black people who agree with you, uh, if you only see worth in black people who accommodate you, then again, you don't actually respect your brothers and sisters in Christ. Generally, you're just tolerating those who further your narrative and reflect your culture. It's not a really about them. It's really about you winning the argument and not looking racist while you do it. Look, all people, especially brothers and sisters in Christ, should be seen as valuable to us and be worthy of civility, courtesy, uh, whether they agree with us or not, whether they agree with our cultural agendas or not. They are worthy of our respect. Most black people who have had significant interactions in white spaces have experienced the situation uh, when everything was seemed to be all good and then they voiced a, a differing opinion and then they realized very quickly that the people around them didn't love and respect them as much as they thought they did because they were immediately dismissed or punished. Uh, the love and esteem was 
apparently conditioned on complete assimilation and docility. They were just being used. If you respect someone, then they can disagree with you without you disregarding or dismissing or punishing them. But when you don't when you don't respect somebody, disagreement throws everything else out the window and you take your ball and go home. And a lot of again, a lot of black people who have spent significant time in white spaces have experienced that. And that's why you see a lot of hurt. You see it on social media. You see it all over the place. In my experience, I think this happens in both white conservative and progressive spaces. Right now, since I've been mostly in progressive spaces most of my life, I'm from Denver, Colorado. I'm in uh, Atlanta right now. I went to Vanderbilt University. I've encountered this dynamic mostly in those white progressive spaces. Uh, There are many white progressives who will talk social justice all day and fight about race with other white people who aren't progressive. But when they find out that a black person isn't a thoroughgoing progressive, all that goodwill, all the smiles and the laughter are gone. Some of the most condescending and insulting conversations I have ever had have been with white progressives who found out that I was socially conservative or somehow found out that I was an Orthodox Christian and things very quickly changed. The conversation changed, the attitude changed, the posture and the tone changes. Some folks can parade around and flaunt their ally of the black community bona fides and use all the latest anti-racist vocabulary, but can't accept that a large number of black people aren't as progressive as the left's narratives say we should be. Too many have no regard and no courtesy for black people who disagree with them. And in fact, sometimes, and you, you, you let me know if you've seen this too, Chris, sometimes it seems like there's even more, a greater disdain, a greater con- contempt for these non-conforming black people. Now, on the other side, some majority conservatives only, only honor and esteem black voices that deny that America has a race, a race problem at all, right? Those folks that those, those handful of voices that say there's no race problem in, uh, in, in America, those are the voices that they, that they connect to, the ones that blame progressives for everything and in turn absolve some of our majority conservatives when it comes to matters of race. They point out that they listen to these black people, but only the ones that happen to say exactly what they would like them to say. Only the ones that, again, tickle their ears and allow them to justify themselves without changing. Without sacrificing anything. Again, you should you could we should all consider. That you might not actually respect these brothers and sisters generally that you might just want to win the argument. That you might just want to further your cause. And if that's the case, that is not, again, respect. That's exploitation. So that was kind of the statement in the background for the statement that I made on Twitter. And Twitter being what Twitter is, some people took my statement to mean that they must agree with all black people or else I'm calling them racist. (sighs) That's ridiculous. The and campaign, me, the and campaign, nobody in the and campaign that was representing the and campaign has ever said that because it doesn't make any sense. It's impossible to agree with all black people because all because all black people don't agree on everything. They disagree on all sorts of issues. We are not a monolith. This isn't about being forced to agree by some type of mandate. It's about how you view people and how you handle the disagreement. If you can't respect people who disagree with you, that's a problem. 
that's unfaithful. And that's the point that I was trying to get at. Now, I'm going to give a hand it to Chris, but then I'm going to talk about how this mandate from First Peter uh, 2 applies to everyone. This is just one example. But go ahead, Chris. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's a, a helpful conversation, an important one. It may not be. So for me, when I think about this, you know, I, too, have spent most of my time uh, in progressive spaces. But as an Assembly of God pastor, I've also been uh, in plenty of, of more conservative spaces. And I, I think one of the differences that I see, and this is church politics podcast, so I'm just going to put it there. I, I don't think it's exactly balanced because in a conservative space, if you have a group of folks who take a fundamentally different approach to race relations and American history and don't necessarily have this uh, sort of articulated appreciation for black people, for difficulties and race relations, it's not, just, it's not a baseline sort of part of their core narrative. The mandate is still uh, important, and I'm talking about the the Peter mandate. Uh, but I do find it a little bit more difficult to handle, Justin, in spaces where we have articulated in progressive spaces uh, that uh, there should be a an appreciation, a particular and almost unique appreciation for black people, for black struggle, for black thought. And then in those spaces to reject people and history and thought that is genuinely and um, evidentially black, just because it doesn't align with your particular point of view, to me, that is a more egregious violation. Uh, Because if if you are saying in your space that we need to make room and lift up Black voices, and then we begin to lift up the pro-life voices of Frederick Douglass and Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, we begin to lift up the traditional family uh, ethic of the Church of God in Christ and the the National Baptist Convention, um, and and you repudiate those things that are historically uh, black, right? Like this is not this this is not borrowed. You know, I've been saying this a lot on the campaign trail. My values, I didn't leave my community to learn them. These are values that I learned in my community from my parents and grandparents, uh, the the ministers who uh, raised me up. And so for me in it, it's a bad look on both sides of the aisle. But for me, in my experience, it seems a little bit more egregious in any space where we have already articulated that we're going to take special care to not disrespect Black culture, Black thought, Black history, Black people, because we have articulated that we do, in our space, have a unique and particular appreciation for that history and culture and people, and then to push it down. And like you said, even be more aggressive against it just because it doesn't align, even though it is still fully black. To me, that's a little bit more egregious. Yeah. And I think part of what I'm getting at too is black people sort of being used as a chess piece 
in a culture war, right? You have this debate between major between white America Americans mostly who are progressive and conservative, and many of them tend to use black people as a chess piece within that conversation. And part of the point that I was making, especially when that occurs in the church, is that you don't use people like that. You don't you don't say, well, hey, look at this black voice. Look at that. But the only ones that you bring up in respect are the ones that say exactly what you want them to say. And everybody and everybody else just gets dismissed. So the 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 the, the part that I'm where I'm coming from is it's not that you have to have agreement like, OK, in order for me to respect you, I have to agree with every your whole economic policy and your whole view of everything else, social justice and everything else. No, but you do hear them out. You do watch your mouth and your response to them. Right. And you just treat people generally a certain way. Otherwise, what you're participating in is tokenism, which is somebody you having somebody there just to have them there just to uh, just to check off a box instead of a true respect for that person who you listen to, who you hear out, who you give a fair consideration of what they're trying to say. That's the point. So whether we're talking about Candace Owens or anybody else that you have a major problem with, you can have the, the issue is not that you can or, or that you can't or shouldn't have a problem with that. Go ahead. But how do you go about that? And do you treat it differently because it's coming out, you know, because it's coming from somebody that is of color? Um, that's that's the quote. That's kind of the the dilemma or the problem that I'm getting at. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's uh, super important. I think one of the ways to stay away from that. Uh, and and you probably do see this a little bit more uh, in conservative spaces, but just to stay away from the sort of representation phenomenon at all, right? You know, I I, I don't like it personally when I'm speaking uh, or preaching or doing anything in a particular space, and then all of a sudden, what I said or what I preached or what I did is representative of Black people and the Black community, because like you said. You can't call for people to agree with all black people on everything because all black people don't agree with each other on everything. Um, and so when you get into this headspace where this person or even this group of people is representative of all you know black people, uh, I think you already are getting into a problematic space uh, because that is going to lead you into that way of tokenism just because it's, it, you can't get one person or one group uh, to represent every voice and every uh, group that makes up the black community. And usually you're only using them as representative because they're saying what you want them to say. Right. So you're standing them to say, hey, look at this one. Look at that. Look at Owens or look at this guy. Look at that guy, because they're saying what you want them to say. What I want to get to is a better respect of people uh, in general and not just using them to to kind of further your narrative. And so I thought that was an interesting back and forth that we were having. I mean, we had some folks who responded to what I said saying, no, I don't respect anyone who disagrees with me because people who disagree with me are evil. Uh, and it was like, you might have that view, but if you have that view, you didn't get it from the Bible. Uh, so there is no justification for disrespecting everybody who disagrees with you or the idea that everybody who disagrees with you has to be evil. Uh, we really have to watch that kind of conversation, but I I'll let you take us out, Chris. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, that if you're in that space, you're not even close to like, uh, 
been in the end campaign space and you probably don't care what we're saying, uh, if you just disagree and disrespect everybody who disagrees with you. Um, but I do think staying away from that representation is a key way to do this. I, I will say that while you, sh- you, you don't have to disagree with everybody who is, uh, you know, a person of color or, you know, any sort of, you know, black people, any, any community. But if you have already said that you do have a special and unique uh, appreciation for a particular group of people, black people in particular, um, then I think you do have even more of a burden to make allowances for people who have disagreements with you, especially when those disagreements are deeply rooted in black history, black culture, black institutions. Now, that's real, man. I, it, it, it always kills me to see somebody who says they have a special appreciation for black people, says they understand black history, but then are surprised to meet orthodox, socially conservative, <laughs> socially yeah. conservative black people. It's like, maybe you don't know as much about us as you think. Maybe you're just in that academic bubble a, a little too much. Or you, you should probably know this and not be so offended. But uh, a conversation worth having. We, I'm sure we will continue it, but we got some other good stuff to get to. We will be right back the church politics podcast this episode is brought to you in part by thomas nelson publisher of grieve breathe receive finding a faith strong enough to hold us written and narrated by pastor steve carter grieve breathe receive those three words became a profound mantra for steve carter during a season of deep healing the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the Right Reverend Christopher Butler. Well, unless you have been under a rock, uh, you know that gas prices are absolutely crazy right now. They're at an all time high. They're even higher than during the Great Recession or right after Hurricane Katrina. Just yesterday, the prices went up another 10 cents. The national average for regular unleaded gas is four dollars and 12 cents per gallon. Mid grade is uh, at four four dollars and 60 cents. Diesel is at four dollars and seventy six cents. And you guys should know that once gas prices go up like that, it affects the the economy as a whole because you have it just makes transportation and all those things more expensive, which is pretty clear. Gas prices in California are almost at six dollars a gallon. Six dollars. The price increase is related to the war in Ukraine and the potential ban on Russian oil imports. As we learned last week, energy was initially exempt from the sanctions against Russia, partially because of the impact that it would have on some of the some of the countries imposing the sanctions. Now, one thing to to understand so we can see how all this stuff is intertwined is that the U.S. only gets about three point five percent of its oil from Russia. But the European Union relies on Russia for about twenty seven percent of its crude oil. This brought up the conversation about America and the West and Western Europe's energy dependence on Russia and how that's compromising 
our position in global politics and compromising the positions in war. Right. This is all coming to a head because there's actually a major conflict going on. Countries like Germany are so dependent on Russia in part because environmentalists have prevented them from drilling more in their country. And we know and I I don't say that as just a criticism of the environmentalists. It's just a matter of fact. Uh, And we know that they don't you know, the environmentalists aren't doing this without reason. We know that uh, this type of uh, drilling can have an adverse effect or impact on the environment. So we get that. But if we're looking at this from a global perspective, it is a bit odd to stop production in your country only to buy and become more dependent on a, on another country, especially when that country is one like Russia. But, Chris, here's where the plot thickens. Right. So we see these countries just to give you a little summer, summary. We have these countries in the European Union, Germany and others who are probably too dependent on getting oil from Russia because they're. They stopped really drilling and producing as much oil because of environmental concerns. But here's where the plot thickens, Chris. It thickens when we realize that some of the climate activists that convinced Europe, Western Europe, to lower its production of natural gas. Some of those activists were actually being funded by Russia. That's right. In 2014, NATO's secretary general revealed that Russia was funding climate activists in Western Europe. Wow. Very shrewd move by Putin. Right. Help stop production in Western Europe and make them come to you. Make them be dependent on you and make them pay you. Right. Now, I'm just reporting the facts as reported by uh, Michael Schellenberger and the Wall Street Journal. This is not, and I repeat, this is not meant to impugn all climate activism or to make it seem bad. That's not what we're saying. You, If you've listened to us for a while, we think that uh, we should be taking care of our environment, that, that uh, it's actually a good thing that we have uh, climate activists. Now, we don't agree with all climate activists or every measure that they say we should take. But it is something that we should be concerned about. And America probably wouldn't be as concerned about it if we didn't have people saying something. But the point I'm trying to make here is this kind of shows us that this situation is probably more complex than we would have thought. Right. It's another example of how complicated politics politics can be, especially global politics, that there's usually more than meets the eye. As I keep trying to tell you, all it's more than just what you're hearing on uh, uh, cable news and what you're seeing on Twitter. There's a lot that goes into this. Uh, so, Chris, I mean, what do you make of this, just this dynamic? The dependence on Russia, Russian energy, the fact that Western countries are not drilling as much, but all they're doing is not really lo- lowering the, the demand from it for it. They're just getting the supply from somebody else. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but I think there's some good intentions um, behind it. What do you make of all this? Yeah, I mean, I think it certainly, as you said, first, the uh, the narrative here is is more complex uh, than you would necessarily think. Uh, I think the lesson to learn, though, is is just to keep our activism, whether it be climate activism or on other issues, more focused on a love orientation, a reconciliation orientation a sort of positive direction orientation, asking the question, 
what do we do? Where do we go? What can we build is much more important than asking the question, what must we stop? Who is evil? What must we defeat? Doesn't mean that they're not, there is not evil. It doesn't mean that there are not uh, entities that need to be pushed back. It does not mean that there are not things that need to stop, but you will get to those things in the course of pursuing good. And I'm always trying to make people see in the activism space that stopping bad or what you perceive as bad is not the same as pursuing good. And if you stay focused on pursuing good, you can keep yourself in a, in a safe space because my question would be, would Russia have funded activism that was really leading Europe toward energy uh, independence and actually shifting uh, you know, the approach? Would they have funded activism that was like, hey, let's Let's get, you know, a, a nuclear program or some other kind of thing that's going to actually produce energy in a completely different way. So we're not dependent on, uh, you know, the oil as much. Would Russia have funded that? I would say probably not. But when you let your activism become centered on, hey, we're going to stop the bad guys, we're going to, you know, beat back the evil, and you you haven't really clearly defined and focused on where we go. I think that is the kind of stuff that can be taken advantage of in global politics and in local politics. Yeah, it's real. I mean, I, I think that is part of it. When when you're when you're an activist, you really do have to have solutions in mind and you have to have an end goal and objective that makes sense. But when you you know allow yourself to be funded by somebody like Putin, you got to question what's going on. I think it also sp- speaks to how we have to be vigilant. I think it also speaks to why just choosing a side and saying, OK, that side good and that side's evil is such a flattened and dumbed down way to do politics. There's so much going on behind the scenes, so many schemes, so much, so many other things that th- that's just not a realistic or healthy way or accurate, accurate way to look at politics. I need to look up the history of this, but I remember that in Colorado, um, they were trying for years and they have it now to get light rail and to change their transportation system so that there would be less driving. The guy, one of the consultants that they hired to actually lobby for them in DC, it comes out maybe a year or so later that he was actually sabotaging them, that they were paying him the lobby and he was going over in DC and actually sabotaging their efforts. So there's a lot of stuff like that that goes, I don't know. I'm not going to say that happens all the time, but that's not the first time something like that has happened. Right. There's a lot of people you're dealing with different intentions and you don't know what people are necessarily up to. And that's why we have to stay vigilant. You can't just choose a side and run with it. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's that's super important, Um, you know, to be vigilant, you know, overall and to be vigilant and, you know, who you're partnering with. Right. So you have one of the larger oil producing nations funding climate activism and other nations. You know, if you're a Russian climate activist, I can think of no better place for you to start than Russia. Right. Um, So again, like that kind of vigilance and asking questions beyond, do you agree with me right now on this issue uh, is, is something that we we have to relearn uh, in, in, in our politics and in our civics. And like you said, Justin, We've so flattened things and so bifurcated things that we don't ask ourselves, we don't ask our partners 
We don't ask our representatives uh, and leaders to do that deeper level of analysis. And too many times you end up in places like this, which is somewhere you probably were not trying to end up uh, just because you flattened everything, bifurcated it and made made everything this sort of simple either or um, sort of approach. And it's, it, it usually doesn't work that way in the exactly. real world. And I'm going to be honest, this is because you have this tension, right? You have the need to be energy independent and you have these environmental concerns. The administration right now, Biden administration is really going to have to be careful about how what the number one, what their policies are going to be and how they're going to, you know, ensure kind of energy independence. They just I'm not sure they're being as careful with their messaging as they should be, because here's what here's something that was said earlier in this week. Uh, vice the vice president said uh, during a, a uh, conference, she said this, we have the technologies to transition to a zero emission electric vehicle fleet. Right. That was her statement. But someone who actually knows a lot about uh, that industry is Elon Musk and Elon Musk disagreed. Here's what Elon Musk, who is the founder of Tesla, said. He said, we need to increase oil and gas output. Because sustainable energy solutions cannot make up for Russian oil and gas. So you have a situation where we're saying we do have the technologies to transition to zero emission uh, fleets. And then you have somebody who's actually in that business, who has money uh, in in that industry saying, no, we're not quite ready. So for now, we actually need to increase our sustainable energy solution. We need to increase our oil and gas output. We got to be careful about that messaging. Here's something else that was said, and and I think this was fairly tone deaf, but U.S. Secretary of Transportation Pete uh, Pete Buttigieg said suggested that Americans who are worried about high gas prices should go out and buy electric vehicles. I wonder why nobody else thought of that before. Well, probably because, sir, electric vehicles are costly. The average electric uh, vehicle costs over fifty thousand dollars. So somebody who's hurting now and can barely pay for gas, you're not helping them to tell them to go buy an electric car. Like we we, they really have to work on that messaging because both those comments were number one. The first one's inaccurate. The second one is is very tone deaf and kind of insensitive. They've got to do better on that. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I mean, certainly you don't want to be messaging that way. And beyond the messaging, you know. Because, you know, messaging is, is, is one thing, but the, the messaging is resting upon, uh, like you said, this sort of sensitivity and understanding of what's actually going on uh, in the world. The idea that people should go out and buy an electric car. Uh, you know, not only are they expensive, uh, you know, where I live, it would be fairly hard to drive because there aren't uh, charging stations you know, plenteous enough. And and so the the way you don't want to do this, right? Because I don't want to sit here and say that I'm like a all of a sudden an, an energy expert. Um, what I do know is a is a lot about public conversation. And the exact wrong way to do this, which is I think what we're seeing, is to jump into this sort of uh you know, bifurcated space where I'm on this one side. And so I have to say all these talking points and, um, 
assert all these claims, no matter what, no matter, you know, the the veracity of the claim, no matter the sensitivity uh, and sort of social understanding uh, with the claims and assertions. I just have to stay on these talking points because this is what my side is saying. Um, that is not the way to lead. That is not the way to have a public conversation. And it is the way to end up in the exact wrong space. And I'm sure it's not just the administration uh, that is in that space. I'm sure there are folks who are on the other side and are locked into their talking points, right? And and that is where, that's the exact place we don't want to be. Yeah, you you can't be on your, you can't be locked into your talking points and have the common touch. You can't be locked into your talking points and really be considering what people are going through. And I think that's obvious. So the first thing, I, I think you make a good point. We need to have that sensitivity of what people are going. If I can't pay my gas for gas, I can't go out and buy an electric car. Like, let's be serious. But also, we need to be honest about where sustainable energy technology is at. And I'm glad that Elon Musk was was able to say, hey, even though this might hurt my pockets a little bit, we can't replace Russian gas and oil with sustainable energy right now. So then as we go about our policy, we have to do it based on the facts, based on the reality of what's going on and not what we want to happen. And too much of our policy is following narratives that aren't actually reality. And that's why we end up with so much bad policy. Anything else on this, Chris? No, I mean, I think it's it's in a good spot right here. I mean, you, you can't let narratives drive your policy, right? Like you got to... You got to make policy out of out of reality, not out of narrative and, and sort of aspirational thought. There it is. We'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction, the AND Campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility. This is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. This next subject, I'm going to have to take my time on because it, it's, it's a little different. It's going to be a little, a little weird to explain, but just, just listen in. Something strange is going on in regard to social media, especially as it relates to teenage girls. An Atlantic article entitled The Twitching Generation, written by Helen Lewis, says that around the world, Doctors have noticed teenage patients reporting the sudden onset of Tourette's like tics. Now, Tourette's is like when people blink or grimace involuntarily. Sometimes they cough or whistle. 
yelling out certain words again involuntarily. But it usually starts with boy starts with boys when they're about five or seven years old. But the new patients are teenagers and mostly girls. Many, many of them, many are having what seem to be involuntary outbursts and randomly saying the same word. So they're having these outbursts, but they're saying the same word, even if they're in different countries. Okay. Apparently, most of these kids are watching popular influencers on social media who have Tourette's. And the behavior of these YouTubers seems to be influencing the tics in the viewers. Tammy Hederley, a neurologist in London at at London's Children's Hospital, uh, sometimes calls her new style tick patients Evies. Evies. These girls come in thumping their chest, shouting beans, and falling to their knees. The nickname comes from a 21-year-old British influencer named Evie Meg Field, also known uh, as the Trippy Hippie. Who has fourteen? Who has fourteen point two million followers on TikTok and nearly eight hundred thousand followers on Instagram? The teenagers who watch these Tourette's videos, they're saying, are also finding community and acceptance and sympathy, but also validation within these commu- communities. Um, and they're saying, like, less wholesomely, they find proof. That the more eye-catching, disruptive, or rude the creators' ticks are, the more viral they go. So the so these folks are going viral based on their tick being more disruptive and kind of eye-catching and really rude. So they may be shouting out the more rude the thing they're shouting out, the more viral they go. And so it's 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 kind of spreading some sort of sickness. Experts are describing the outbreak as an example of mass psychogenic illness, mass psychogenic illness, also uh, known as MPI. That is an illness that arises in the mind and makes a group of people feel unwell at the same time. Such outbreaks used to be called mass hysteria. And when they're looking at what's going on, they said it fits uh, existing research showing that many members of Generation Z are anxious, isolated and depressed with body image troubles worsened by the perfect bodies and aspirational lives they see on TikTok and Instagram. Uh, the author says they are part of a grand social experiment, the first cohort to grow up with the internet on smartphones, the first generation whose entire lives have been shaped by the demands of social media algorithms. So, Chris, you literally have young people developing tics through this kind of social hysteria based on seeing somebody do it on Instagram and have their parents completely, you know, just confused about what's going on at all. I think one of the things that this shows us, and we knew this to some extent, is that social media is certainly a Pandora's box where we're still kind of finding out what's in it. Um, And without discipline, Uh, Without oversight, especially when it comes to parents, we're seeing that this is getting more and more dangerous. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly getting more and more dangerous. It is certainly uh, experimental, like we heard in the article, like we heard the president talk about in his State of the Union address. And it does require oversight and it does require discipline. I would suggest that it it requires that oversight and discipline at the household level, 
uh, the sort of individual uh, and family level. But as a society, we have always, I think, had in the social contract that as a society, we do not allow rampant predatory behavior. Um, We will create laws that prohibit rampant predatory behavior. And I certainly think that while there is a, like there's a burden on the individual, a burden on the household uh, to be uh, disciplined, to be vigilant, to be um, sort of engaged in that kind of activity. I do think this is uh, just another piece of evidence that what we have in social media is something that needs to be looked at for it's sort of broader societal impacts and what policies need to be created to protect people in the society, especially our young people from the potential harms. Yeah. And I think we would agree that it starts with family though. Like we, we can't, we can't expect other people to regulate this out of our family, right? We have to be, you can't let kids, you can't let our kids be raised by a tablet. Uh, And it's, and it's easy to just give a kid a tablet and just sit them in the corner and they can sit there for two hours and not bother you. That's convenient, but it's not healthy at all, especially once they get on social media. When they're looking, I've heard so many stories about people, their kids is watch, their kid is watching something on YouTube that's harmless. By the time you go back over there 30 minutes later, they're watching something completely different that they didn't even look for. It just pops up. Uh, there's so many reasons for us to be watching these kids and not letting them go on uh, some of these, uh, you know, some they don't really probably don't need to be on TikTok, probably don't need to be on Instagram. You got to pay attention to it. And I, I want to make one recommendation, though. Uh, the t- the Tech Wise Family by Andy Crouch is a really good book in this regard. I would recommend, you know, everybody reading that because tech, I mean, again, we don't we don't exactly know what we're getting into. We don't exactly know how bad this can get. I think there's a lot of good things that come from it, too. But we have to be very vigilant because, number one of the things that I've mentioned several times, Chris, the technology is out in front of the ethics. So our ethics haven't caught up to where the technology is. And so even as we start to form policy, but to form policy, you got to have some ethics. You got to know what you're what you're trying to control. This is a very important time to make sure that we do that. Yeah, no, and I I. I always sort of try to point out, especially on this issue of technology and social media, uh, that these movements that I'm referencing uh, that produce policy, they never come down from, you know, the powerful and the elite, right? They raise up from the household, the family, the community, and that movement can't be birthed uh, in our society until that uh, sort of commitment is there uh, at the family and the household level. So I think that these uh, these two don't stand apart from each other. And I, and I know that some some put it that way. But I think one of the things I love about the AIM campaign is that we often point out where these things that other folks try to teach us are sort of mutually exclusive. Uh, they actually exist together and are sort of dependent on one another. So I think that as as families and communities lean into really considering what is this harm. Uh, That's where those ethics uh, are going to be developed as families and church communities and, um, you know, broader networks of people start to work through what we have here and what is the real impact 
on life, on children. Uh, those ethics will develop, those uh, communities will develop, and we will see where boundaries need to be set up as we engage uh, at the, the sort of family household level. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the idea of young people developing physical ailments based off what's going on on social media should wake us all up. Uh, Social media technology is moving. I think there are a lot of good uses, but you got to believe the enemy is going to use it to his advantage, too. And so we have to be on our toes. I think churches, you know, we have to look for training. We should, you know, have people read that tech wise family, at least somebody in the church so they can kind of teach other folks in the church what's going on and what to look out for. Because a lot of people just don't know. A lot of people are are kind of assuming and I I get it that uh, people who are making this stuff have the best of intentions and that nothing like this can go wrong. But I think that's a bad assumption. Well, as always, folks, we appreciate you for listening to the Church Politics Podcast. If you want to support us, if you want to become part of the movement instead of just watching on the sidelines, there's so many ways to get involved. You might have a, a local chapter in your city. You can go on our website and see that. You can donate on our website. If you just like the, the podcast, you can uh, donate to the podcast um, through our Patreon. So you can go to patreon.com slash church politics. But get engaged, whether it's a big uh, contribution or a small one. We need you. And the and campaign does not run without you. So we appreciate you. As always, and camp, there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, and camp. Well, I'll let This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.